Turn to 2 Samuel chapter 15 with me. I mentioned last week that verses 7 of chapter 15 through verse 14 of chapter 16, I was going to treat as one large section, and we only covered half of that last week. So we're going to finish up um, the second half of that today. But obviously, um, they kind of go together for us. I'm going to just do a um, summary of what we did last week, and then we'll come up to the last sections. There were a number of encounters that David had with different individuals and people, including the Lord, um, in these verses here. And each one of them teaches us something about either um, David himself and how he reflects Christ or, or God and his relationship to us. So let's just recap some of those things. You remember the first encounter was found in verses 13 through 18, and that was when David encountered his servants. Remember, Absalom is now on the attack He's um, won the favor of Israel. He went through this scheme where he sat at the gates and his people would come to get counsel from David. He would tell them, oh, David's basically too busy to see you. Wouldn't it be nice if somebody were here to see you instead? Oh, that would be me. Thank you very much. And so through that, Absalom won the hearts of Israel. And so he was getting ready to attack Jerusalem. And what does David do? He flees to protect the city and the people. He knows that it would be better um, than if he stayed there and tried to defend the city. His troops were far outnumbered because Absalom had control of the Israeli military. David had his 600 men. And so he decides to flee. And so we have this encounter with his servants. And if you remember, David, um, as he's going out of the city, he lets those servants cross on ahead of him and he stays to the back of the pack. Now you would think you'd want to protect the president or the king, right? And have them kind of leave first. And But David does the opposite. So he basically allows them to usher out of the city. He makes sure that he's the last one to actually cross over the Kidron River. He's afraid for his household, his family. He's afraid for the city itself that it will come under attack. So he does everything he can to prevent that from happening. And so one of the things we learned through that encounter, if you remember, is that in spite of David's fear, he felt this obligation to protect his people. It makes me think of Jesus Christ as he's in the Garden of Gethsemane. If you remember, he's there sweating drops of blood. Three times he goes to the Lord and essentially says, if it's possible for this suffering, this cup to pass from me, but not what I want, not what my will is, what your will is. And so we have to understand, I don't know if we would classify that as fear, but we certainly would classify it as suffering. And um, it's clear that Christ did not want, from an earthly, fleshly perspective, to go to that cross. Who would? Imagine the suffering that he experienced in a physical sense, but even more than that, the suffering that he experienced in a spiritual sense, being separated from his father. In fact, he asks him, why have you forsaken me? And so we look at that and we see a reflection in David's care for Jerusalem here and his desire to put the needs of his people and the needs of the city before his own, even in the midst of maybe his fear and the suffering that was about to come. We see that reflected in Christ as well. And so we see David here serving as a type of Christ. And we see that Christ did that for us as well. He put us before himself. He set aside his own suffering and, if you will, fear of what the cross would involve in terms of torment and suffering. The second encounter that we had with David here was with a guy named Atai. That's in verses 19 through 23. He was a Gittite, if you remember, which means he was a Philistine. He shows up, remember, with his friends. We don't know where he met David. He shows up with some of his brothers and his, and his friends. He references Yahweh, which means he was probably a Jewish convert or somebody who actually believed in, in the Jewish God, Yahweh. 
He might have known some of the other 600 men who were primarily Philistines that were with David or non-Israelites. When David sees him, he basically says, well, you're, you're a foreigner here. You don't, you don't need to be here. This is not your battle to fight. Go home. Be safe. So he thought about Atai and his well-being, his own family, told him to go live in his own country and serve his own king. But you remember Atai's comment was, whether for death or for life, I'm here to serve you. And so he puts David's needs above his own. And if we remember... Um, David needed every single able-bodied man he had. And Atai was apparently a very good soldier, a good commander. In fact, we learn later that after he defe- after um, this event, he goes on to command one-third of David's army of men. He was a good commander. Certainly David could have said, I need every man I can get. But he instead, once again, places the needs of somebody else above his own and so he tries to send a tie home, but a tie is having absolutely nothing to do with it. And so what we can learn from this, obviously, is just that. David's commitments to not only set aside his fear for the protection and safety of his own people, but his willingness to put their needs above his own needs. And we see that in Christ as well. We saw that while he was here earthly, in an earthly sense, we see it. In many respects, even now, where he's still crazy as it may sound, serves us, does he not? We are to serve him, but Christ is preparing a place for us. We're told that he will come back and get us. Um, we're told that he hears our prayers. In fact, he gave us the helper to do exactly that, to help us. The third encounter we saw was with Zadok, the priest. Doesn't tell us why Zadok and the Levites were following David out of the city, but they had the ark with them. Now remember, David had moved the ark to Jerusalem. He believed that that was God's calling for the ark, and so... Um, David's leaving the city and Zadok and the priests don't even ask him. They just pack up the ark and they start following. And when David sees them, he sends them back. Don't know exactly why, but probably because David was absolutely convinced that that's where the Lord wanted his ark. You know, this made me think the other day as I was rethinking through some of this. Um, you know, God has a purpose for the church. And that means he has a purpose for the local church as well. And it's not always real super clear. You know, it's like pastors are supposed to lead and direct and, you know, that kind of stuff. But it's always troubling when we see that somebody has their own agenda or when they look at the local church as being so important that they can't be separated from it. I don't know if that's making sense, but I think of some of the stuff that happened with with um, James McDonald up at Harvest and some of the very disturbing stuff. But at one point as he began to realize his grip on that church was beginning to sort of be forced out of his hands, there's statements that he made and there's documented evidence to, to, to show us what those statements are about how that church was his and the church would not survive without him and how it would go where he would go. And we see that sometimes, especially in today's environment with um, sort of the large... I was reading a story the other day about the... Um, um, how mega churches in the United States have grown and many other churches have diminished and disappeared, and there's all kinds of reasons for that. But one of the things that they talked about in the article was um, how many of those churches are tied directly to the pastor and how they're driven that way and built that way, and they're built around, I call it the cult of the pastor, the cult of the personality. And um, most mega churches, something like two-thirds or three-quarters of them are multi-campus 
churches now. That was a fairly rare phenomenon back 20 years ago. You'd have a mega church that would grow up, and that would be it, and they would plant another church. And Grace kind of did this, where Grace is responsible for most of the Grace Brethren churches in Ohio, or at least in the central Ohio area. Had Grace today started as a mega church, if you will, the program might have been very different because it would have been, oh, that's our, that's our extension over there. That's our extension over there. The multi-campus will beam in Pastor Jim. I'm not saying they would have done that. I'm saying that's what, what you would expect kind of today. And so when we look at David here, David, when he leaves Jerusalem, instead of going, hey, I'm the king. The ark comes with me. God's presence goes with me. If, if I can't be in Jerusalem, then the ark shouldn't be there because I'm, we're so fused together. It has to. But David said, no. That's where God wants his ark. That's where the headquarters is, so to speak. And he was so convinced of that that he was willing to leave Jerusalem, even though he says here that it's the Lord's habitation. He didn't know, in fact, he even tells us that, he didn't know if he would ever be able to go back to Jerusalem and be in the presence of the Lord. Remember, that's where David went after he sinned with Bathsheba? That's where the Lord's presence was, man. You wanted to go sit down and be in front of God? You went to the temple. You sat down there. The ark was there. And the picture we have is David on his knees with his face down, sitting or stand, or sitting, squatting in front of this ark because that's where the presence of the Lord is. And he desperately needed that after he realized what he had done and then called out on his sin. And so here he is leaving Jerusalem. He sees the priest coming, bringing the Lord's presence with them, supposedly. And David says, no, go back. God's purpose and plan is for that to be in Jerusalem. And so as we look at David here, I'm just um, in some respects in awe that he was willing to accept the Lord's will because he, he basically says that it might just be the Lord's will that I'm being run out of Jerusalem. This might be the consequences of my own sin. And he's unwilling to manipulate, if you will, the Lord's will, take it with them. You know, and so... Again, we see that when it reflects Christ. Not my will, but yours be done. Um, throughout Jesus' time on earth, we see him repeat multiple times that he came to speak what the Father wanted him to speak. He came to do what the Father wanted him to do and didn't do anything and didn't say anything other than what the Lord directed. He was so intent on being the perfect, perfect obedient Son of God to accept the Lord's will. And we see that in David here as well. He was committed to accepting the Lord's will. He then has two more encounters, well, there's an additional encounter, but there are two more encounters that we covered last week that kind of go hand in hand, the encounter with the Lord himself and then Hushai, his servant. And the first, the, the interaction with the Lord is when he basically, David prays because Ahithophel, one of David's advisors, is now with Absalom. And um, David knows he's going to give bad counsel to Absalom. In other words, bad counsel meaning to come after David. And so David prays to the Lord. We see that interaction. He's willing to accept whatever the Lord's answer is to that. But then we find out that in this interaction with Hushai, that the Lord answers it almost immediately. Hushai was David's advisor. He decides to come with David. David says, no, go back. You're better off for me spying on Absalom so I know what's going on. And we see that what, what um, Hushai does is when Absalom acts, act, um, asks Ahithophel for his counsel, he gives him his counsel, but then Hushai goes in there and twists it and gives opposite counsel. And Absalom actually then follows Hushai's counsel. And so we find here that the Lord actually hears and acts on behalf of our prayers. James says that he does that specifically um, for a righteous man. 
the Lord hears when we pray. And there's an expectation that we should be able to do just what David did, which is to pray and expect that God would answer his prayers. And so we see that reflected in this as well. So that takes us then right up to the last two encounters that we did not cover last week. And so we're going to spend our time on, on that today. The first we find here is Ziba, and that's in chapter 16, starting in uh, verses 1 through 4. Let's see if I can get my Bible turned to that. Second Samuel chapter 16, verses 1 through 4. I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to read those for us. Now when David had passed a little beyond the summit, behold, Ziba, the servant of Mephibosheth, met him with a couple of saddled donkeys, and on them were two hundred loaves of bread, a hundred clusters of raisin, a hundred summer fruits, and a jug of wine. Sounds like something Dustin might enjoy. The king said to Ziba, Why do you have these? And Ziba said, The donkeys are for the king's household to ride, and the bread and the summer fruit for the young men to eat, and the wine for whoever is faint in the wilderness to drink. Then the king said, And where is your master's son? And Ziba said to the king, Behold, he is staying in Jerusalem. For he said, Today the house of Israel will restore the kingdom of my father to me. So the king said to Ziba, Behold, all belongs, or all that belongs to Mephibosheth is yours. And Ziba said, I prostrate myself. Let me find favor in your sight, my lord the king. So David, after he crosses what's called the summit of the Mount of Olives, it's about three miles outside of the city, He's greeted by this man named Ziba. And if you remember, Ziba was the one who was caring for Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth. Remember, he was the one that couldn't walk. He had been crippled as a young boy, dropped, I think it says, when he was around age five. It's back in chapter nine. So Ziba was there to basically take care of Mephibosheth. So here we are. David's out there in the wilderness. He's fleeing now. As you can imagine, he probably doesn't have all the supplies that he needs. It was a quick getaway out of Jerusalem takes whatever he can, and he's, he's trying to get his family moving and, and everything else. And so here this individual Ziba comes along. It says that he's got a ton of stuff for David and his men. 200 loaves of bread. He's got 100 clusters of raisins. It says 100 summer fruits. It's most likely probably 100 baskets of fruit. But it's things like apples, bananas, cherries. There's all kinds of lemons, mangoes, all kinds of good fruit in Jerusalem. It's also got this jug or a skin of wine. And then he's got donkeys. Most of your translations probably refer to a pair or a couple of donkeys. But a few verses later, he says here that it's for David's household to actually ride. I can't imagine all of them jumping on the backs of two donkeys. So the two donkeys here probably refer to those carrying the food. And it's pretty shocking. I did a little research in this. It's pretty shocking the amount of supplies that two donkeys could carry. All of this, except for maybe a hundred you know, bushels of, of uh, fruit. But most of this could have been carried by two donkeys. Now, again, it's specifically referencing that, but again, there's, there's likely additional donkeys for David's family to ride on. But So this man comes out, Ziba, and provides all of this to David. Now, we learn a little bit later that Ziba probably had some ulterior motives here. He's trying to gain David's favor somehow. Um, we find out a little bit later that he's going to be lying here to David about um, Mephibosheth. So he's got these ulterior motives. What do we do with a passage like this? Um, I think the takeaway for us here is found in the fact that you've got this man Ziba, who even though he has ulterior motives, God uses him to provide for David. He makes provision for him. 
David and his group had left Jerusalem, obviously, in haste, barely enough time to escape with the clothes on their back, let alone food or drink or supplies. Um, it's interesting the number of times we see the Lord provide food and provision for his people. Think about uh, what happened in the, in the uh, wilderness as Israel sets out from Egypt. They're in the wilderness for how many years? Forty, yeah. And what did the Lord provide for them to eat? Anybody remember? Two things. Manna and quail. Now, I don't know what you guys, I'm not sure I'd be crazy about eating manna and quail for 40 years, but if you're out in the wilderness and that's all there is to eat, hey, so the Lord provided that for him. I think about Elijah. Remember the um, Elijah when he baked the cake on coals and he had water to drink in 1 Kings? I think about the prophet's widow and her son, if you remember that story. Um, all she had was a little bit of oil and a little bit of flour, 2 Kings, and yet... She'd pour a little bit of oil, it would just keep pouring. Reach in and grab a little bit of flour, there was always more flour there. God multiplied that, took care of her and the prophet. Um, there were two other occasions where the Lord provided food for David. When he was at Nob and he was fleeing Saul, remember he went in to the temple and took the consecrated bread? And it's pretty clear in that passage that the Lord was absolutely fine with that. He had provided that for David and his men. Then we also... See, in chapter 17, before the battle of Absalom, he's provided for once again. And so there's this constant theme throughout the scriptures that God provides for his people. There's no question about it. He takes care of us. We see in the New Testament with Jesus. How many people did Jesus feed out in the wilderness? It's a trick question. On two fronts. Anybody want to guess? How many people did Jesus feed in the wilderness? Oh, come on. Somebody's got to guess. Is it 4,000? Is it 5,000? Yeah. Now, if you count women and children, it's likely probably three times that. But it's a trick question in that if I ask, how many people did Jesus feed in the wilderness? And you say 4,000, you're wrong. If you say 9,000, you're wrong. Why? Because you've got to add them together at least. Right? 9, 10, 11, 12. Okay, you get one of my point. I'm just playing with you folks. Trying to make sure you're still awake. But Jesus provided for their needs. And it was, it was simple. They could have all gone home, right? But Jesus instead provided for their needs and he did it supernaturally. And that's just their physical needs. Paul, the Apostle Paul. Turn to Philippians chapter 4, verse 19. Philippians chapter 4, verse 19. Let's go. Let's actually start off in verse 15. Paul says, You yourselves also know... Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel, this is chapter 4, verse 15, after I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, but you alone. For even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for my needs. Not that I seek the gift myself, but I seek for the profit, which increases to your account. But I have received everything in full and have an abundance. I am amply supplied, being or having received from Epaphroditus, what you have sent. A fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. And then look at verse 19. He says, And my God will supply all your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Paul talked from his own experience. Paul was a tent maker, obviously, but he didn't make enough to provide for all of his needs and the needs for all of his men. He worked for that purpose, but he also received the blessings from people like the Philippians that would help to provide for some of his needs. And Paul elsewhere says, and he knew what it meant to be in plenty, and he knew what it meant to be in need. But God always supplied 
for Paul's needs. How about Matthew chapter 6? Turn to Matthew chapter 6. How does that apply to us? Matthew chapter 6. Starting in verse 25. For this reason, I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink or for your body or what you should put on. Is not life more than food and body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air that they do not sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? And who, for, or who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to his life? And why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow, that they do not toil, that they do not spin. Yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all of his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothed the grass of the field, and which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you? You have little faith. Do not worry then, saying, What will we eat, or what will we drink, or what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles already seek all these things, for your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. One of the things we learn from David here, as he's out fleeing, that the Lord still made provision for him, still took care of his needs. Jesus tells us that we don't have to worry because he's a God who provides. He started by providing for our spiritual needs, did he not? I'm amazed sometimes at my lack of faith when it comes to things like this because I think, you know, if he was willing to provide my greatest need and was willing to put his son on the cross to take care of my greatest need, the thing that cost him the most, is he not willing to take care of my everyday needs that literally cost him nothing? Isn't that true? It's all the Lord's anyway. And yet I still sometimes worry. You know, I think about this election season here. Can I ask? You don't have to raise your hand. How many of you are freaked out at the thought of where we may end up after Tuesday? I see some heads nodding. We talk about it in my family. I talk about it with people at work. You know, the world's going to end after Tuesday because if, God forbid, one candidate gets elected, you know, we're all headed towards Russia and Venezuela and everything else. And I understand that because I have my concerns. I have my fears. I've had my debates with people over whether or not we can vote for Donald Trump when he's got the kind of character he does or whether we should vote for Biden, who's the fatherly grandfather. You know, do you can you in good conscience vote for one over the other? Do you just purely look at policies? Are you a one policy vote? I, I know all that stuff. And it makes all of us nervous because we don't like where it's going. But then I kind of stop and I say, you know what? And I have to encourage my kids in this because they hear us debate it and talk, and they pick that up and now my kids are all freaked out. But then I have to stop and try to remind them, remind myself, you know what? How much does it really matter? Because the Lord is in control. We may not be comfortable with the results. It may get very challenging for us depending on who's elected and where it goes. Amy posted a great article this week about the torture of the Christians in North Korea. And I'm standing in my bedroom reading that. And I'm thinking, I'm looking around my bedroom, and I'm thinking, man, I feel guilty having a nice bedroom like this. 
when I know I've got brothers and sisters in Christ that God has allowed to suffer. But you know what's strange is if you talk to many of them, they will say the Lord has provided. Maybe not like what we think, because we look at it in terms of comfort and privilege and wealth. And that's not always the way the Lord provides. David, I'm sure, wasn't always comfortable when he's living out of a cave. But the Lord met his needs. That's the reality of it. And so as we look at this here, what we find is that even with this man, Ziba, who's got these ulterior motives, David's needs are provided. And that brings me to a second point with this. I've been thinking about this a lot lately as it comes to how I decide whether I can vote for somebody like Trump, whose character I do not appreciate, versus his policies that I really seem to favor, versus another individual who some say isn't quite as bad, but policies are just horrific and you weigh through all of that kind of stuff and one thought comes to mind two wicked men in some respects two sinful infallible men can God use them God can use either one whether we like it or not may use one for good and one for bad but the reality of of this is here's this man who's got these ulterior motives who's really in it for himself here we'll see that in the passage with Mephibosheth in a little bit He doesn't have the right motives in what he's doing. But God still uses him to now take care of David's needs. And there are examples throughout the scripture where God uses infallible men, men with bad motives, and even wicked men to provide for his people. I mean, think about Israel being in captivity for 400, 450 years. They came out of Israel with a fairly significant number of people as well as some wealth because it says that they basically ravaged the Egyptians as they left. The Egyptians basically said, here, take our silver, take our gold, get out of our city, we're tired of all the plagues. God does amazing things sometimes in how he provides and he can even use people with bad motives for not so great character. That's one of the things, and, and you know, you got pastors have to be really careful, right, with what they share, you know. One of the things that I've appreciated about, about Trump is even though I don't necessarily believe that he's saved, the policies that he's instituted to help with religious liberties and rights to me has been shocking. Even some statements, I've been saying for years that we ought to, be, we ought to stop doing business with China because of their human rights abuses. We ought to be calling them out. He's the first president in history that's ever done that with China. He specifically mentioned their human rights abuses, not just about towards Christians, but even the Muslims that are being imprisoned over there. You can go to the, you can go to the White House's own website and they'll list the number of executive orders and other things. And there's a number of things that specifically relate to those things that we value tremendously. Now, I'm not saying that we should support Trump for that. I'm just, you guys figure that out for yourself. What I'm saying is, God has used somebody who is not likely a believer and used them to do things like additional Supreme Court justices that are supposedly more conservative, the number of judges that have been put on to other federal courts that are significantly more conservative, that believe in life, believe in liberty, believe in a, a, a more literal interpretation of the Constitution. If you look at the number of things that the Lord has used him 
to do to institute policies that are much more favorable from our perspective. That's shocking to me. God can use people that don't know him to do what he wants to do to make prov- And I think a lot of those things are provisions the Lord has made for us. I think the Lord, in some respects, is giving the United States a second chance. Meaning, um, for the longest time, we've been under assault. I think the Lord, in some respects, might be saying, okay, we'll allow you to have your freedoms back. We'll allow you to have some of these things, and let's see what the American church now does with them. Maybe that's just me. That's my own opinion. That's, you can take that for what it's worth. But the reality of it is God doesn't only use righteous people to accomplish his purposes. And here's an example of Zeba, who literally does have ulterior motives, going out and giving a bunch of... And this is not by any means a little bit of stuff. There's a lot of food, a lot of provisions that this man has given to David. And again, the Lord uses him to provide for his people. I think that's the takeaway for us. Jesus tells us not to worry. So even if the election doesn't turn out the way we hope or think, should we worry? Should we be afraid? Can the Lord still provide? Absolutely. Absolutely. The last encounter is with a man named Shimei. That's found in verses 5 through 14. And I will say it this way. This is by far the weirdest encounter out of these individuals. Chapter 16, let's read verses 5 through 8. When David came, or uh, King David came to Baharim, behold, there came out from there a man of the family of the house of Saul, whose name was Shimei, the son of Gera. He came out cursing continually as he came. He threw stones at David and all the servants of King David and all the people and all the mighty men were at his right right hand and his left. Thus Shimei said when he cursed, Get out, get out, you man of bloodshed, you worthless fellow. The Lord has returned upon all the bloodshed of the, or upon you all, the bloodshed of the house of Saul, in whose place you have reigned, and the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom, and behold, you are taken in your own evil, for you are a man of bloodshed. There's times I kind of laugh at this, and I think, you know, why don't we use words like that sometimes? You worthless fellow. But as I look at this, what we find is a rather strange encounter. David arrives in this small village of it's basically a little wide spot on the road, if you will. You don't expect much to happen there, but this crazy dude named Shammai comes out and he begins to curse and swear at David. He begins to pelt David and his men with stones. It's, it's almost like straight out of a Monty Python skit because one dude throwing stones at an army, you would think he'd be cut down in a second, but he's doing it nonetheless. He's telling David, just get out, get out of here. Don't come to our small little town. But he calls David a man of bloodshed and a worthless fellow. Now, the Lord referred to David as a man of blood as well. Which is why he did not allow David to build his temple when David wanted to build his temple in Jerusalem. However, the bloodshed here, which is rather interesting, in verse 8, he refers to, Shimei refers to the bloodshed having to do with Saul's family. And what's interesting is David wasn't responsible for that. So even though we might be tempted here to say this guy was speaking on behalf of God, calling David a man of bloodshed, 
Um, it appears that he was accusing David of something. David had not been a part of it. It appears that this man may have been a supporter of Saul and accusing David of bloodshed because Saul and Jonathan had been killed, um, attacked by the Philistines. And so something doesn't quite line up. But nonetheless, the words are, are eerily similar to what the Lord had said to David. Now, David's bloodshed was taken apart from what he did with um, Bathsheba's husband, the bloodshed that David, or the blood that David had shed, was all in, in military. David had never been accused of murder or, or other things, and so this man's charges, in some respects, ring a little hollow. But again, sort of look very similar to David, the words David or God used against David. I love how David responds, though. How would you respond being accused of something you had not done? Look at how David responds in verse nine. Then Abishai, the son of Zariah, said to the king, Why should this... Again, why why don't we use language like this? Why should this dead dog curse my king? Let me go now and and cut off his head. Reminds me of the scene in Monty Python where they go to the bridge, I don't know if you remember it, and they got the guy standing there defending it. And King, or was it King Arthur is his name? Pulls up. And, the, and the, the dude, the soldier is blocked, or the black guy, guy dressed in black is all blocking it. King Arthur cuts off one arm and the guy still fights. He cuts off the other arm, he still fights. Cuts off his legs, he still fights and says, I'll bite your kneecaps. You know, that kind of thing. But um, but he says, come back here, man. I will cut off his head, David. Let me take care of this. David doesn't let him do it, though. David says, what have I to do with you, O sons of Zariah? If he curses, and if the Lord has told him, curse David, then who shall say, why have you done so? Then David said to Abishai and to all of his servants, Behold, my son who came out from me seeks my life. How much more now this Benjamite? Let him alone and let him curse, for the Lord has told him. For the Lord has told him. Perhaps the Lord will look on my affliction and return good to me instead of his cursing this day. So David and his men went on the way, and Shimei went along on the hillside parallel with him. As he went, he cursed and he cast stones and threw dust at him. The king and all the people who were with him arrived weary and refreshed himself there. So David's first response is essentially, well... Maybe the Lord told him to curse me. And if so, why should I tell him to stop? I don't know if that would be my first response. I think I might have said, I go right ahead. He's cursing the king. He's cursing God's anointed. But David doesn't do that. He says, hey, maybe the Lord told him to do it. His second response is essentially, my son Absalom is trying to kill me. This guy's cursing and throwing stones at us. Be any worse than that? I mean, David's got great perspective here. He realizes the bigger picture is he's being run out of Jerusalem by his son. He's really worried about one dude throwing stones at him and swearing at him. It's a fun. It's interesting how offended we can get, especially with words. And David says, "Really? You're going to go cut his head off because the guy's swearing at me and throwing stones at me? It's not really a threat. The bigger threat is my son Absalom." third final response is essentially David saying, you know what? 
maybe this is good. Maybe the Lord will have compassion on me and return good to me in place of this guy's cursing. Do we ever think about that? When we are accused unjustly or when people say things about us, and our response is, the, our first response is defend ourselves. Our second response oftentimes is to return the insult with insult. When Jesus says, maybe we ought to just turn the other cheek. David here says, you know what? So be it. Maybe what the Lord will do with this is he'll take this guy's cursing and he'll turn into a blessing somehow. Maybe he'll return good to me because of what I'm facing from him. It's a good lesson for us, is it not? You recognize the foreshadowing here? Remember, David is a type of Christ, which means he represents Christ. He foreshadows what we should expect in Christ. Just as David faced the unwarranted persecution and abuse from Shimei, Jesus faced persecution and abuse at the hands of those he came to save. Remember, that's what we're told. Those that he specifically came to save rejected him. Remember, he goes into Jerusalem and the crowd is going nuts and they're all praising the coming of their Messiah, their King. They're throwing palm branches down in front of him. And within, what, a week? I don't think it's the same exact people, but some believe it is. But they're now calling out for him to be put to death and asking for a murderer to be released instead of Christ. Jesus told us that they would hate him and that's exactly what we saw We still continue to see that today. Here's this man who died on behalf of the world, and the response is the world hates him. They twist and they pervert what we find here, his word, to say things that it doesn't say. Jesus said that the world will hate us and persecute us because they hated him and persecuted him. That's the reality that we live in. We went through 1 Peter not too long ago. First Peter basically says, Christ suffered, and therefore, what should we expect? We join in his sufferings. We look at Christ, and what do we see with him? We don't see retaliation. We don't see him lash back out. Look at uh, Matthew chapter 5. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness... For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. But then he follows up with this. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is in heaven is great. And in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So what Jesus basically does, he looks at his disciples and he doesn't say, don't worry about it, I'll take care of it, I'll cut off the head. No, he says, blessed are you when you're persecuted. Blessed are you when you're insulted. Blessed are you when they hate you, when they throw stones at you, when they curse at you, just like Shimei did of David. Why? He says, well, because your reward is in heaven. David says, maybe the Lord will return good to me in replace of the insults here. And so that's what Jesus says for us. So again, we have this foreshadowing of David and his words reflecting exactly what we see in Christ, which then gives us a pattern as well, which means David, in some respects, 
reflects what our response should be as well. It's interesting how, um, as we look at this political season now, I've mentioned to you before, you know, John Haller had, had mentioned to me that he's never quite seen as much vitriol as we've seen these last, this last year probably, some of which I think is caused because of frustration, you know, hey, we're all businesses shutting down, we're maybe going to lose our jobs and can't go out to our favorite restaurants and we've got to be wearing masks and washing our hands all the time and you know, we, we see all this stuff going on and we're all getting tired of it. We're all, you know, getting agitated. And now they're talking about, I told Amy this morning, this, you know, Boris, I was calling Boris Bandanoff from Rocky and Bullwinkle, but Boris, um, president of, um, or prime minister of England, um, just announced they're going to shut down all non-essential businesses from November 3rd to December 5th in, in England. Schools are still open. Um, but uh, all non-essential businesses have to be shut down. Restaurants can't serve people anymore. They can only do carry-out foods and stuff. So they're basically shutting everything down again. And I can imagine what people are thinking over there. And I'm, I'm fully expecting to see our stock market tank here on Monday because what happens there, they expect to come here, is what they always feel and think. But So we're all getting agitated. We're all getting frustrated, right? So we get a little bit short-tempered with each other. But there's more than that going on, too. Because now we see it in our politics, and we see things that are being said and done, and we see our media behaving the way our media is behaving. And now... So the people that we should expect to be the most gracious, the most kind, the most loving, in some respects, we've seen somewhat the opposite. So what do we learn through all this? Essentially, as we look at these different um, episodes, again, David reflects what we see in Christ, his encounter with the servants. We saw that in spite of the threat to his own life, he protected those around him, just like Christ's care and protection for his disciples. In his encounter with the tie, we saw David put the needs of his others, the tie specifically, put those needs above his own. We saw in his encounter with Zadok the priest that David's commitment to God's will meant that he wasn't so concerned about having to take it all with him and take temple out, he was so willing to accept that, you know, maybe this is the Lord's will. Maybe he's removing me from Jerusalem. Maybe he's taking me out of his presence for a reason. Didn't know for sure if he would be able to go back, but he was so willing to accept the Lord's will. In his encounter with the Lord and Hushai, we saw that the Lord is always willing to answer our prayers, and we can expect that he does. He might not always do it the way that we want, but the reality of it is, the Lord tells us he'll answer. And we saw them do that when David prayed that he would thwart the plans of Absalom. In his encounter with Ziba, we saw how the Lord provides for his needs, even in ways that maybe we might not expect, through people that we don't expect, ways that we might not expect. Jesus told us not to worry because the Lord will provide for all of our needs. And then lastly, in his final encounter with Shimei, we saw how David handled unwanted abuse and persecution and how his response reflected that of our saviors, that God could indeed take any circumstance and situation of abuse, of persecution, and ultimately turn it into blessing. Maybe not always in this earth, but as Jesus said, your reward is where? In heaven. Amen.